welcome to Pregnancy Help Podcast. My name is Christine Grimmett, and I'm here with a room full of people, friends, um, some are board members or past board members of Heartbeat International, and we are here at Heartbeat International's annual conference. We're in Columbus, Ohio, celebrating our 50th anniversary. It's like a big birthday party for Heartbeat International. It's so exciting to be here, and we wanted to talk about Heartbeat's history. So we have Darrell Godsey, president of Heartbeat International with us, and we have Peggy Hartshorn, who is the former president and current board chair for Heartbeat International, and I'm excited to hear more about Heartbeat's history, so I will turn it over to them, and we'll get started. Thank you, Christine. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Christine. So it's a great opportunity, Peggy. We get to, we get to walk down some stories, some, some of those things that I have heard. Uh, one of the things that I get caught quickly when talking to someone is is in the U.S. at least, many of us today think of the abortion issue arising in with, with Roe v. Wade in 73. But Heartbeat actually predates that, and, and the, the rise of the pregnancy health movement even predates Heartbeat a little bit. So could you kind of talk about that, that era? That's kind of sure. like the late 60s, right? Late 60s. I was in college. Uh, wouldn't you know, I had chosen to go to California and right outside of San Francisco, um, from Ohio, I'm from Ohio, so that was already a brand new atmosphere. My grandparents had moved to California when I was a teenager, and uh, but I was in a very traditional college, very traditional Catholic college. Everything, everything seemed right with the world, you know, at that college, everything that I believed and had been taught growing up, and uh, I was learning more about, about God's plan for us and about the beauty of our creation. And, you know, it, it was just, it was an extension of who I had grown up to be, and I loved it. But around me, uh, in San Francisco, there were the hippies, there was the uh, whole sexual revolution was unfolding. I'd go into the city. Unfolding? I, I would say it was really on fire in that yeah. area. Well, that's true. Yeah, it, it had unfolded, let's yes. say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought you were going to mention something about the people burning bras in Golden Gate Park. They were undressing. It was not only unfolding, it was, it was just very strange to me. And in another direction from my college, they were burning buildings at uh, Berkeley in the Vietnam War demonstrations. And so I felt it, it, was, it was kind of a culture shock, you know, and I would come be at those places and then come back to the college where everything was as it should be. It was like, I felt I was, when I was there, the world was right-sided. When I left, what was happening? And uh, sometimes I, I say this in, in, our, in our book that, that I felt like I was a frog that had been dropped into boiling water and I could jump out versus the frog that, and I think this is unfortunately the case today with so many young people, teenagers my age growing up today, they, they're, the water keeps heating up, that, that cauldron of, of untruth and uh, all the temptations of the world and the pornography now and the confusion of ideas, the, the thought that there is no such thing as truth, everything they're being exposed to, you know, it's all around them and they're just, they're just the water's being heated up and heated up and, and if they don't get out of that water, you know, they're going to boil to death. So I was very fortunate that I came from a place that when I was exposed to all of the things that were were not true, I could see that, you know, and it was very disconcerting. One of the things that I saw was in 1967, billboards started to go up uh, 
pregnant, worried, call here. And it, they were abortion clinics. California, already before Roe v. Wade in 73, uh, abor- abortion, there were proponents, uh, N- National Abortion Rights Action League, Planned Parenthood, um, a religious coalition for abortion rights were the three main groups that were promoting, liberalizing our abortion laws all over the, the country. And uh, they were having success in some states. I think there were five or six states that had liberalized their laws, uh, including California, before the Supreme Court decision. Um, and and I guess in my perspective, I knew that was happening in California, but and it was shocking. But it was like, okay, this is California, and it's a crazy place. And I, I had no thought that this would happen everywhere. So some things don't change, right? <clears throat> Some things don't change, that's right. We have some wonderful people here from California and some of our former board members, and we know that God is working in California too, you know, and where there is, where there is evil, you know, God is trying to bring good through many, many people. And we have actually a large number of pregnancy centers now in California. We do. Yeah. We do. So, but at that time, I think all pro-life people thought we can turn this around. And in fact, there were referendums in some states where we had won. You know, people had voted down changes in their abortion laws. And like Michigan is an example. And, and so we thought we could before turn it Roe. around. Before, so before Roe. Roe. Yeah. Right. So, um, of course, I, wasn't, I, didn't, I knew nothing about pregnancy help at that point. Um, but anyway, what happened was I went back to Ohio and things seemed right again. <laughs> uh, my husband and I got married. I went to graduate school. And it wasn't that I forgot about the issue, but it wasn't forefront um, in my mind, and when I was in graduate school, driving up to meet my advisor, I was in a graduate program, a graduate school, um, I heard announced on the radio that the Supreme Court today, January 22nd, 1973, has handed down a ruling uh, declaring the right to privacy and uh, right to the woman for privacy, and that that will negate all abortion restrictions in state law in this country and uh, all through the, the nine months of pregnancy. And I just couldn't believe it was true. And I suppose along with that, all the things that were happening in our country at that point, the Vietnam War, the demonstrations against the Vietnam War, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., um, all these things were happening. And so the world was just, what is happening here? You know, and I thought, at least with this abortion issue, uh, maybe, maybe I can do something. And that's what I felt. Something's wrong in our country. How can this be happening? You know, I've got it. Everybody has to know and understand what I know and understand. You know, that was kind of the thought. And that was the thought of the early pro-life movement. Really, we can turn this around because people just don't know that human life begins at conception. They just haven't seen the pictures, you know. They don't know. And so Mike and I started out in the right to life part of the movement. And, um, and that was the thought. Let's take them the pictures. Let's show them that human life begins at conception. And surely the American people will respond. But that didn't happen. Of course not. <clears throat> we're, of course, 48 years later after that, after that moment, uh, but also in that time frame, there was something else going on because you you describe uh, as you've explained to me, there's a meeting in Washington mm-hmm. that then yes. translates to a meeting in Chicago. Again, this is a unlike little... me who who was kind of oblivious to thinking that this. Well, I was being told we can turn this around. Well, there were there were visionaries at that point, people of of the next generation above me, who who knew and understood that this was much deeper, and that uh, that that. 
once abortion became legal, there would be people pressuring women, and particularly the men in their lives, which was true, uh, coercing them to, toward abortion, even though instinctively, you know, women would not want that. Um, and they knew we had to have a safety net. They knew that this was not going to be something that was going to be turned around quickly. And that was our founders. Uh, the people that, and the Holy Spirit was really raising up people around the country, and then we later found out around the world, who knew that women and families needed a safety net, and they needed help and support, and that without that, there would be more and more and more abortions. So now they didn't know about each other. You know, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> and who, who were these people? Who get, they were ordinary folks, ordinary, they were, they were mothers, they were housewives, and among our founders, there were uh, doctors, there were Catholic doctors, like our founder, Dr. John Hillebrand, because the Catholics, they had a tradition and a teaching about human life and the dignity of the person from the very beginning. And so uh, they were ready to respond to this. Um, other Christians weren't quite as ready you know, to so respond. So this was, this was largely a kind of a Catholic... It was a Catholic movement, primarily in the 70s. So there were doctors, Catholic doctors, particularly OBGYNs, and one of them, Dr. John Hillebrand, was one of our founders. Mm -hmm. uh, there were, there were uh, other people raised up, Sister Paula Vandegeer, one of our founders. She was a very young a Catholic nun uh, who was a sister of the social service. So she was a social worker. And she was assigned to an adoption agency there in California as her first assignment. And she all of a sudden came, realized that these girls that were coming to the adoption agency were barely there because they had been already being pushed into abortions. And she said, how could this be happening? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she was also called. But there were, there were people of all walks of life, um, and they didn't know that each other were, existed at that point. But again, they were largely they were in the Catholic community. Yes. And, so, mm -hmm. and I've, heard, I've heard this. Uh, can you just speak to this? The, that in, in some ways, the other side used that. Yes, they used it against us. Uh, when, so? I, when, I got, when I would go out speaking, remember I started in Right to Life showing the pictures just trying to educate people. Human life begins at conception. And we have the scientific facts, no question about it. Um, we had rudimentary audiovisuals at that point. Um, but the first question from the audience would always be, are you a Catholic? And when I would say yes, that's what we call, I was an old English, I am an old English teacher, by profession, an English teacher, the ad hominem argument destroy the man. If you destroy the man, you destroy the argument. And so, so that's by personal, calling my Catholicism right. out, that was in their way of saying, well, that's just a bunch of old men in Rome that, you know, are making crazy rules that don't apply to women today. And so therefore, everything that you've said up to this point doesn't count. <laughs> and that was truly, it was used against us, unfortunately. And it, so in, in some ways it was used to divide. Yes, because the Because point. the, the <clears throat> Protestants of that time, or evangelicals, didn't necessarily want to be confused with Catholics, because obviously <laughs> there's, a, yes. there's a little, just a little division that's been around for a few hundred years. <laughs> but, right. it's, but, there, but that was almost like, hey, don't, if you, that was almost a warning to the other side that if you align, well, then we're going to think you're Catholics, and somehow that's terrible. Mm -hmm. But of course, it was, so it was used that way, in essence, it, to yes. kind of scare them from the conversation. That's true. And yet there were some very heroic Protestant pastors in those days. There was a Methodist pastor who was uh, part of Ohio Right to Life's board. He, in, the, in a few, he was very outspoken. In a few years after that, they defrocked him, the Methodist mm. 
church mm. defrocked him. Mm -hmm. um, and so what happened, unfortunately, was this group called ARCAR, Religious Coalition for Abortion Rights, which still exists, although they've slightly changed their name. In, as the states started liberalizing their laws, they got busy getting many, many Protestant denominations. They had over 250 statements from different Protestant denominations in a brochure that stated things like, in many cases, abortion is the most merciful solution, you know, for women with difficult pregnancies, or in the case of rape, or in the case of incest. And they had all kinds of official statements. They had gathered them together. And so I know that the, that the Protestant churches were somewhat confused by that. So and I, really, I, yes, the, the, the Southern Baptist Church and the Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Church were the only ones at that point that had made pro-life statements. Excellent. Mm. Uh, but I have seen the uh, 1971 article, I believe, in Christianity Today, where it equivocates. I mean, it, it, it mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't yeah. come down. It's, it, you can see kind of the um, mushiness of the, of, of the feeling that was coming, because Christianity Today was uh, founded by um, Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. And so it was really interesting to kind of see the evidence of that kind of uh, lack of, of anchoring in really the pro-life ethic that, that, that would come later. Yes. We're going to talk about that Thank in a minute. Goodness. But it was not <laughs> there. And I appreciate how you said it, that, that the Catholics were ready for this fight yeah. because of their teaching and mm -hmm. the scholarship mm -hmm. that came in. Mm -hmm. so, so then we get to Roe v. Wade, and then mm -hmm. what happens? Well, at that point, again, the, I didn't realize that there was already a safety net developing. And our founders uh, and the people that the, that the Lord was raising up around the country did eventually meet each other. <laughs> they were called together. Again, the Catholic Church, uh, there was a bishop who had been traveling around the country and, uh, and saw that this was happening. So he got together 60 people that he knew in different states and parts of the country that were doing pregnancy help. They had started hotlines. They were doing it out of doctor's offices. They were meeting people on park benches. He got them all together in Washington and said, you people need to get to know each other. <laughs> and that was basically it. <laughs> and then they took it from there. And uh, the, there was a group already started in Canada called Birthright, founded in Toronto. But the Americans decided, we don't all want to be the same name. We don't all want to have the same charter. And we've already established already a few little centers and hotlines. So we want to have a, a federation of existing pregnancy help services. And we want that federation, which they ended up calling Alternatives to Abortion International, which is now called Heartbeat International. They said, we want that federation to, to that central body. We want them to help help get us together and keep us together and help us train and, and help us be more effective and even get an 800, a Watts line, where we could have toll-free women to be able to connect to us. So th thank you for referencing the Watts line because Again. we didn't have yeah. Facebook back then. You know, <laughs> that was Watts this, line, this was, yeah. a, this was no small task back <laughs> no, in those days right. because you, you just couldn't be in an online group like we can now exactly. and suddenly be connected. Yeah. It was actually quite the uh, challenge to stay connected yes. as, a, as a very diverse mm -hmm. and uh, geographically mm -hmm. And, and in many ways, uh, denominationally in some sure. cases. And so the, I, I love that, that Heartbeat International was founded by our affiliates. Mm -hmm. They wanted us, they, they brought us into existence to make sure that the best training was available, that the best networking 
that that um, we could have a directory. That was another vision of theirs, that we would keep track of all the centers developing all over the world so that we would not only be able to refer people to them, but connect with each other and collaborate. And so their vision was wonderful. Um, and, and that happened in 1971. That was when Heartbeat was mm -hmm. officially established. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're dating our... Our, our birthday. So that, that happened at that happened in Chicago. Chicago the the yes. official meeting where that 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 really was cemented mm -hmm. was in really was late in the years. I understand. Yes, like in it was November, November okay. of 1970. So we're kind of. But this is appropriate appropriate for our birthday. We're celebrating now. What's the month? April, April right? Yeah. yeah. Because you know, I think it's in Japan, but it's in some Asian countries that you they celebrate your birthday nine months before you were actually born. So I think it's very appropriate uh, that we're kind of celebrating our conception early, okay. the early the early months of our gestation before <laughs> November. How's that? We'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> okay, so then we get into the 70s, yeah. and um, and this, this, this starts out as a, a alternatives to abortion. Yes. Uh, incorporated, in essence. And, yes. But then it quickly changes from being U American or U.S. focused. Yes, and one of our founders was a German lady, Doctor. her name was Laura Meyer. Uh, she was a refugee from Nazi Germany. She spoke several languages. She had become a citizen of the United States, married an American, and settled in Toledo, Ohio, where our other, one of our other founders, Dr. John Hillebrand, was. Um, but she always had an international vision. Um, and, and, and Dr. Hillebrand himself was a pioneer in, in true women-centered uh, OBGYN. And so one of, the, one of the things that was happening in those days was that the birth control pill had recently been invented. It was a very high-dose estrogen pill. And women were dying all over the world of blood clots uh, caused by this high level of estrogen. And so he became an expert witness. Uh, and he traveled all over the world uh, testifying in the deaths of women you know, who had died from uh, the birth control pill. And so he had contacts all over the world as well. So both of them had a very international vision. But that, that also reveals you know, one of the th challenges that we run into, particularly from the other side, is that we're baby-focused. Mm -hmm. But what you just said is really coming from the heart of someone who was very woman-focused. Women-centered, absolutely. And yes, uh, you and I, Jarell, in, in writing the book, The Power of Pregnancy Help, which, which Heartbeat is, is publishing for our 50th, you know, I think we have a, a heading, something, it's more than saving babies. Yes, we are saving babies in pregnancy help. But from our founding, Heartbeat has always been very woman-centered as well, very family-centered. And um, Dr. Hillebrand was famous for saying, the um, I, I, first time I heard him say it, and then I've heard him say it, I did hear him say it other times, uh, I've delivered 10,000 babies, 10, babies and never lost a... And I thought he was going to say baby, but he said mother. And I was just coming out of the right to life part of the movement. That really had a profound impact on me. And uh, it's interesting, we have, um, we have a, a doctor visiting us at our conference this year who uh, heard me say that. And she came up to me and said, when you paused, she said, I was filling it in for myself. She said, I've had several thousand patients. And she said, when you got to that pause, I said to myself, I've never lost a patient. So she said, when you said, never lost a mother, she said, this is the kind of mission that I want mm. here. I'm pro-life, but and, and I'm a physician, but I want a mission that in, 
encompasses the whole woman, the whole family, you know. So Which it's is powerful. the pregnancy help movement. That's right? us, that, that, yes. Yeah. Despite the allegations of the other side. Absolutely. So we, so we get to the 70s. Now you have this kind of founding and framing that's mm-hmm. going on of, mm-hmm. of, uh, har- of what it becomes later, Heartbeat National, but Alternatives to Abortion International. Yes. You have, uh, I think you mentioned in the, uh, at one point that the original directory was primarily U.S., but also had a couple of had international... Had one entry from New Zealand, and it had, I think, 11 from Canada. Because okay. remember, birthrights had been founded in Canada. There were 11 birthrights at that point, I believe. And uh, one from New Zealand, and there were 103 entries altogether. This is what our founders knew of what was existing in pregnancy help. And about half the entries are just names of individuals that are starting centers, you know. But one of the things I I shared earlier was that um, in those days, not like Heartbeat Today, there there were not a lot of resources published for people who, who God was calling to start centers. And my husband and I... Uh, when we first heard about Alternatives to Abortion International, was 1978. And we went to our first conference in 1980 and attended a workshop, a 45-minute workshop on how to start a pregnancy center. We felt we were called to do that because we had been housing pregnant girls since 1975, and we knew we needed a pregnancy center in so Columbus. So the heart. Hartshorn Home was the, really the first pregnancy help center in Columbus, Ohio. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of. And then it later became official yeah. with an organization and a well, building. Well, we did have a birthright there. And okay. let me clarify the difference in birthright and, and heartbeat affiliates for the most part. Birthrights are wonderful organizations. They still maintain an all-volunteer character and, and a charter, and they all use the same name. They are really focused on pregnancy support. So when a woman decides to continue a pregnancy and needs support and health, uh, help, they can provide her with one of their main services used to be Lamaze classes. Remember when Lamaze classes were big? Um, um, maternity clothes and so forth. But they're not focused on real intervention in the crisis of am I pregnant? Can I be pregnant right now? Uh, and Which is what our pregnancy help centers mainly focus on. Intervention. Inter- we, we, crisis we, we intervention. Would, yeah, we actually, would call it yeah. intervention. So, yeah. the so there was no agency there in Columbus, no group that was ready to, with a 24-hour hotline, with, with help and support, when you need it, we are here. Okay. Our doors are always open, and we didn't have that. So then something big happens. In the, uh, as we move through the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, something really, really important happens in 1979, to be specific, that changes the equation for the 80s. And we have the um, evangelical, ah, uh, really, the, yes, really there's absolutely. a light that, that, that starts with uh, a book written by Francis Schaeffer, who is mm-hmm. an uh, evangelical theologian, right. uh, one of the main thinkers in, of the evangelical, there are a few. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Whatever he happened was, to the human race. Yes, so, and he, mm-hmm. he co-authored that with C. Everett Koop, who, yes. who gets introduced to the whole nation just a few short years later as Surgeon, uh, General. As Surgeon General under right. Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So that launches uh, it, a powerful change of the landscape of pregnancy help. Absolutely. Uh, some people say the Catholics were in the first wave, and then the second wave came along. Wow. And that was the evangelical churches. C. Everett Koop and Francis Schaeffer, they, they did a movie series, Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And um, that really brought in the evangelical churches and evangelical pastors. It's interesting because as you look back, anyone who, who is called by God, and I bet a lot of our listeners are, and maybe it may not be directly in pregnancy help, but you know God's called you. 
and you get involved in something, and then all you, as you look back, you say, wow, he was preparing me for that all along the way. Well, I didn't know what was going to happen with the evangelicals coming into the movement, but I was still teaching at Franklin University at that point. I was still a college uh, professor of English, and, and I was doing all the, all the everything else was volunteer and pro-life, and we had a wonderful faculty group of uh, Catholic professors there and, and Protestant and evangelicals. And we, we knew we were all believers, and so we said, let's get together and have a, it was a secular university, mm -hmm. uh, but we said, let's have a book, book group. And one time, one month a Catholic will choose the book, and the next month in, and a Protestant will choose the book. So uh, one, uh, one of the people in the group chose uh, the book by Francis Schaeffer. You know, and wow, that was such a great, it was wonderful for me to read that. So that had to be probably 1979. I didn't know what was going to come from that. Sure. But then I knew, I knew about it. I knew I was ready for it when it came. So, and, and for my particular uh, preparedness for this wonderful movement now where we are all Christ-centered, you know, all different expressions of Christianity here in this movement, I think that partly prepared me for that, that mm -hmm. experience at Franklin. But also in my own family, my mother came from a Protestant family, and we had missionaries and church organists and choir leaders. And whenever I visited my grandparents, I went to, they dropped me off at Catholic Mass, and then, they, then I went to their church. And I loved the Sunday school. I loved everything about it. And then on my dad's side of the family, you know, we had nuns and priests and, and daily communicants. And so... Again, I looked back and I said, wow, God, you really prepared me. I love this. You know, I just love it. So God prepares all of us, you know, for the role that he has for us. So the evangelicals get the, really start to get on board mm -hmm. with, with what's going on and because they're challenged deeply because whatever mm -hmm. happened to the race is really a call to do something. Yes. And one of the things that, that the pregnancy help movement represented to the evangelicals in particular was it really was this mixture of an opportunity to rescue someone who's in a challenging situation, but do it in the in the framework of an evangelical, which is basically to share the gospel or evangelize, mm -hmm, right? So, mm -hmm. so rather than go to necessarily Washington or the state house or or head out to the lecture hall, they really moved in big in the in the pregnancy help movement, and that really happened. We we uh, we've we have a chart at Heartbeat and uh, of the years, of the year founded of many organizations. And you can see very clearly 84, 85, 86 is like this big giant peak. You can almost see the how the book in 1979 creates this, this, um, this really ginormous like influx yes. of, of, uh, of, of, Pregnancy help, and we think that's mm -hmm. mostly evangelicals moving into this movement. Well, and our center, the center we founded in Columbus, Ohio, was started in 81, so there were also a lot of Catholic groups sure. starting centers at that time, too, sure. that were finally getting the vision. So it was a real period of growth and development, and I remember Sister Paula, one of our founders, Sister Paula Vandegare, um, who often said that in the 80s, our executive director at, at Heartbeat Central at that point, who was Lori Meyer, she could hardly keep up keeping track of all the new pregnancy centers that were developing. <laughs> yeah, and remember in those days they were putting them on index cards and <laughs> changing the direct addresses and phone numbers as they moved to other places and publishing yeah. our directory. That's when know, they really used things like whiteout and. Yes, uh, yeah. oh gosh, that was horrible. <laughs> 
But yeah, there was a gigantic influx in the 80s. Right. And, uh, and it was wonderful to see also, that's when we all started also realizing the Catholics and evangelicals, we didn't have to have Catholic centers and evangelical centers. We could work together. And that happened in the center that my husband and I founded in mm-hmm. Columbus. And, um, and we had our grand opening on January 22nd, 1981, and already there were people trying to start or had the vision of starting a center from the evangelical community. But they had kind of been directed in some written material, if there is a center already existing, go and visit. So we had wonderful, we had people coming from evangelical churches seeing what we did, and they said, hey, we love it. Can we join you? And we said, wonderful, yay. Awesome. So, so that, <clears throat> by the way, that little story informs us at Heartbeat today, because when someone reaches out to Heartbeat and says, I think we'd like to start a center, one of the first questions that we will ask back is, is do you know where there's a center near you? Because what we will then tell them is, uh, you never know, you may be the answer to prayer that 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 community is already looking for for more energy and more more involvement, more engagement, so that it's not necessarily have to be two separate things. It could right. be working together just as the one, as you described happened mm-hmm. in Columbus. Mm-hmm. And it was so wonderful. It's like being in Heartbeat today where, you know, you're sitting at a table with or there's praise and worship or, you know, you have there's a Catholic speaker or someone says we're still celebrating Easter, so let's say amen, hallelujah. hallelujah. And yeah. then you say, what does that mean? Let me find out, you know. And so we le- we're learning much more about each other and, uh, and, and benefiting from that so tremendously. So a, a big thing happens in the 80s that the evangelicals get involved in a, in a big way. Absolutely. And then we move into the 90s uh, where we have another kind of major occurrence that, that, that happens. It started really in the 80s and a little bit, but it really begins to take hold in the 90s, and that's medical. Like that's oh, yes. what ultrasound becomes a, 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 a begins Absolutely. to become a powerful force in mm-hmm. the in pregnancy help community. And there were some pioneers out in California. Actually, I was at an uh, an AAI board meeting when uh, the Los Angeles people came to us, our Los Angeles affiliates, and said, told us about. A court ruling in Los Angeles County that doing a pregnancy test was considered a medical service, and you couldn't do that unless you were a medical clinic. That was limited at that point to Los Angeles County, but all of a sudden we realized, well, we knew we were under attack, but now could we not even do pregnancy tests? And so a few pioneering centers out in California had started trying to get medical directors, become licensed clinics, but in and it was really in the 90s that that blossomed. Yep. And uh, sometimes we call it going medical uh, with the addition of the ultrasound machine. And Jarrell, you've done some research. I and I want you to share that. But the ultrasounds, bringing them into pregnancy centers, having nurses trained to do the ultrasound, all of a sudden we were able to get through the, the wall. Sometimes girls would come in who were abortion-minded and, and undecided, but they had a wall protecting them. They didn't really want to get into their real feelings and wants because because they they were bound and determined, I've got to have this abortion. I can remember one woman saying to me one time, I've got to have an abortion. Don't confuse me with the facts. Mm. You know. And so they had the barriers up. And once they could see their baby on the ultrasound screen, woo, that just took the barriers down. And there was their maternal instinct. And so it really, really helped us to get down to the core with, with the pregnant women. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, but I want you to tell the story of how, 
of ultrasound, how God used the ultrasound. So that was an interesting story. <clears throat> I just started poking around and, and realized that, you know, we, we're, we're looking at it as a, this amazing tool that becomes available in the 90s, but only to find out that it was really only invented in 1958 is when the first occurrence happens. And there was a Scotsman, uh, uh, Dr. Ian MacDonald, who was um, pioneering this. He, he had been in the military and he had worked with some of the radar and sonar equipment and he had borrowed some information from some other people and he was definitively pro-life. And actually, he was also in the midst of this, not unlike you, through the 60s. He's, he's in, that, in the late 50s and 60s, the same dynamics are kind of happening in his arena in the, in the United Kingdom. And he begins to stand up and then begins to advocate because he is the first uh, he was an, an OB, and he's the first one to use this tool on on uh, masses inside the, um, the abdomen. abdomen. Mm -hmm. And this becomes then the next thing that they start to scan for are babies and what that means. And so here's this pro-life doc creates this powerful tool, which which years later becomes the powerful tool to transition the whole pro-life movement. Isn't that Very wonderful? powerful. Yay. Now, here's a sad story is... Um, one of the one of his great hopes was to have been knighted for his for his work, uh, being a, a, a member of the royal mm. uh, or a, a, United a, a royal subject, however <laughs> they say it. Uh, I'm, I'm an American, so I don't fully know all that. But that was one of his aspirations, and it was denied him wow. simply because he spoke out. Uh, as it, with great pro-life conviction, mm. and um, anyway, great great legacy, mm -hmm. and and someday you know we'll we'll all be able to celebrate that what he did for us became a powerful tool for the entire pro-life movement just a couple of decades later. Absolutely. So it becomes more accessible to the sure. to the local. Um, uh, we were able to the idea that this just didn't have to happen in a hospital; it could happen in our offices, and all of that began to happen through the 90s. Yes. So then we move into <clears> the 2000s, and we're off and running because now growth is happening and heartbeat is, is well you become president in the 90s that, that's the other thing <laughs> yeah I become president in 1993 I resigned from my from my full-time teaching job with much um, I I people will say well kicking and screaming I finally said yes uh, to the Lord I, I thought he was calling me but I needed a lot of convincing <laughs> but finally said yes and the minute I made that actually had to turn my resignation in at the college. The minute I did it, I felt this gigantic burden lifted, and it, I knew it was the right decision. But it, it was, it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience in my 23 years, starting there in 1993. Started so small, were, started and, small. And you were the first paid employee. I was the first paid employee of Heartbeat And you were the first president. And the first president. So, I, and I decided I should call myself president versus executive director, because I had never been an executive or a director. Uh, I thought it sounded a little more kind of nonprofity, maybe like a nonprofit uh, position. But I thought also I'm the only employee, and our office right at this point is in a storage closet at a pregnancy center that lent us office space. So something better sound important, I guess, you know. Uh, but really, it it was, you know, that that expression: God does not despise small beginnings. And I bet a lot of our pregnancy centers uh, have had those kinds of small beginnings. In fact, I know I've heard their stories. What happened was after 20 years of all-volunteer leadership at the top of our network, Alternatives to Abortion International, the visionaries, the people that had all the energy and the stamina, they were getting old. You know, They were the older generation when they started AAI. And so they had to retire. Sometimes there was sickness in their families. 
um, there were just all kinds of issues and problems, and they didn't really have a good leadership transition plan. So um, well, I didn't. had been they on the didn't. board. They, <laughs> did, they didn't have one, but apparently God did. Well, thank you. But I was on the board and, and agreed to be the acting board chair and try to build up the organization again, and then eventually uh, realized I was supposed to be the president. And and then God just really blessed it. It was it was an amazing experience there in the 90s to uh, see all, all the resources that he would bring. You know, when you say yes, if he's if if this is really what he intends and this is his will, he will supply the resources, uh, and he did. He and did. so it was a big building. It was again a kind of a rebuilding phase for AAI. And so throughout the 90s, we um, we we moved from that storage closet. Uh, we re- to, renamed it to Heartbeat. It we renamed Heartbeat it to Heartbeat International. Heartbeat was always a name associated with us. Our our newsletter and then our magazine, which was a wonderful magazine we published for centers with all kinds of great research and articles on counseling and so forth, was called Heartbeat. And the first center that was founded by Dr. Hillebrand in Toledo, Ohio, the founder of AAI, was called Heartbeat of Toledo. So it was a name that people knew. And, you know, after that was another Holy Spirit thing because our board had a whole list of 20 names that people thought would be great. And, and I, I should say why we changed from alternatives to abortion international because that is the generic term. That was in the phone book as the heading, alternatives to abortion and abortion services. So I'm saying why do we need to change this name? But very wise people said, the word abortion is so polarizing that, and, and, and I got that, that uh, experience when I tried to register us to do a conference in a hotel before we had changed our name. I said, we want to do the conference there. We'd like to, you know, have, send us a potential contract. I said, our name is Alternatives to Abortion International. He said, oh, well, should we be expecting demonstrations? Uh, will there be any violence? You know, and this was back, you know, in the, in the early 90s. So I realized it was correct. We had to change our name. Uh, and that, that has been a blessing too. So now we're Heartbeat International. Right. And have yeah. been ever since. And have been ever so, since, yes. We, so we moved from the 90s into the 2000s, mm-hmm. or into the new millennia, right? And we, so yes. we all survived Y2K. <laughs> and uh, and we, we we managed to get over mm-hmm. that, and then we mm-hmm. were off and running in the new millennia, mm-hmm. and uh, just to kind of meld the the, the two uh, two thousand and two thousand twenty together, okay. we really see um, some some things begin to rise. Begin heartbeat begins to do some different things as mm-hmm. well. We mm-hmm. we end up with being attacked. I know in uh, New York, a lot York, of attacks. Uh, the attacks really started also, in the eighties. Also 80s. Ohio mm-hmm. and, did it? Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the eighties it was more of a PR attack. You know, they came in as fake clients and took. I don't know how they took videos of us because we didn't have cameras. I mean, we didn't have cell phones with cameras, but they had hidden cameras, you know, and hidden microphones and, and tried to get us saying something wrong, you know, that they could make us look silly in the media. Yeah, Ben, there was a congressional hearings in the 80s, and yeah, it, it wasn't, I mean, obviously it was building up. Got much, much worse in the 90s and, and the 2000s, as you say. Because we had a particular attack from, I know, uh, New York, in New York, the state of New York. Yes, the state of New York. And also Ohio. Ohio. Oregon I as think, well, is it? Um, Baltimore. Late, late, that's true. Late, yeah. A little bit later. Yeah, and uh, yeah. several years later, we get. Uh, uh, yeah, it becomes a, of, also a city strategy. Mm-hmm. It becomes a, not just city a state and strategy, city yeah. and county strategy. And they tried all different things. They tried, um, well, saying, I can remember the one in Ohio where uh, they wanted disclaimers in our Yellow Pages ad. 
I, we were listed under abortion alternatives, and there was a listing for abortion services, but they wanted all of us in abortion alternatives to have all kinds of disclaimers. We do not refer for abortions. We do not refer for contraceptives. You know, everything we do not do, not everything that we do do. But luckily, the centers fought back. You know, actually, we had a very pro-abortion attorney general in the state of Ohio in those days. Uh, so that's what was happening. There, uh, almost like the Holy Spirit raising up all these wonderful people that he was calling to start centers. The devil was somehow motivating a lot of other people, almost independently, in states and cities and counties to try all different ways of attacking pregnancy centers. Yeah, they tried all kinds of things. And we're still here. And we're still here, and yes. Still and going. stronger than ever. That's right. And I think because Jarell, why? Because why? We're, we're, we're doing what we know to do, which is love people yeah. into making life-affirming decisions. And, and because God is with us. You know, God is with us. And I think you wrote a really great article about uh, the response to uh, Nifla versus Becerra. So you may, you may want to talk about that recently, of how what they intended for evil has absolutely been a blessing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Having that, that, that confirmed. So yeah. that, that's, a, that's a longer story. But uh, essentially the state of California tried to force the pregnancy centers in that state to carry a message to the clients of pregnancy centers that abortions were available, please contact. And so they were Free forced in the yeah, state of California. They were, they were in essence forcing the pregnancy centers to promote abortion, the very thing that we stand against mm -hmm. and stand to help people mm -hmm. to avoid. And so what they tried to do in order to make centers do that uh, ended up being a, a case which lost it, lost in California, lost in that uh, that district, lost at the appellate we court. Lost, yeah. We well, we yeah, lost. We right. lost everywhere mm -hmm. along the way, and then until we get to Supreme Court and we win mm -hmm. five to four. And so, and not only that, but what happened was several other states had picked up on that same kind of attack okay. and began to Approach. do the same thing. Mm -hmm. I I remember the the it was the state of Hawaii had uh, also done this. And uh, they were just distraught that they had to actually pay something to the local pregnancy center for, frankly, for all of the grief and, and attorney's damages. fees that mm -hmm. they had caused. <clears throat> but the center didn't ask for that, that fight, but no. the, the state had done it themselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, the same thing in the city of Baltimore. We had happen a local ordinance, um, six years, and in fact, the judge said that six years, 1,274 pages of testimony, and, this, and the city had failed to prove that there was anything wrong with, with, with going on in that center yeah. and wasted that. And I remember that uh, a Baltimore council member as well, uh, also bemoaning the fact that they had to pay out money for the very fight that they brought to the center. Right. And so it's unfortunate that they simply can't realize and respect the fact that these are good people doing good work in mm -hmm. pregnancy help centers. And, and the sad thing is, even though that was a great victory at the Supreme Court for our freedom of speech, that's still not stopping all the attacks. No. Now they're trying a different angle. So... We know that God is protecting us. We constantly have to pray for that protection. But thank goodness he's raising up people, legal strategists, judges, attorneys, that are able to defend and, and protect right. us as well. And we yeah. want to do that. I, but I think it's a good time to open up for questions mm -hmm. and answers. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we have questions. Whether or not we have answers is <laughs> a whole other question. <laughs> kind of depends on the question. That was a uh, great uh, history, and thank you for <laughs> sharing that. Yeah. <laughs> so the question is, what do you see the future of Heartbeat? What uh, is uh, Heartbeat going to become, and what do you need in order to accomplish that? 
Great question. Yeah. Well, Jarell and I just wrote this book of The Power of Pregnancy Help, and the, the last chapter is about the future. And I said, Jarell, you write that. <laughs> Jarell is our leader, and uh, he's got a vision. So I'd like for you to answer that, Jarell. Sure. It's maybe, it might be a little preview of our uh, my talk, brief talk tonight, but... Uh, uh, really, to me, it boils into three major things. And I started thinking because I have just been kind of captivated by the by what what the, our, the founders of Harpy did 50 years ago, and kind of what they saw. And I was I was saying, Lord, how can I see something that I have no idea really what that's going to look like in 50 years? Because we are dealing with a speed of change mm, in so technology fast. and even culture and a lot of things that it's like wow, hard to even kind of forecast what will be available to us to accomplish the mission, but the mission is simple. And to me, it boils down to three main goals. We need more places. We need more pregnancy help locations, more maternity homes, more adoption. We need more places and we need more people. We're gonna need at least, I, we only have, I think we count, stretching the number a little bit, I think worldwide, we count about 100,000 people that do this work focused energies on this work on a regular basis, 100,000. And so in my mind, we need to increase that a hundredfold. We need to have, we need to have a million people doing this. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and to me, we're going to start running after that uh, day Good. one of the next Good. 50 years, right? Mm -hmm. Good. Um, we're going to start running after that. <laughs> and then the third thing is that we really need more pathways. We, we need more ways to do what we do. You know, the pandemic has, has uh, kind of brought us along on some technology things. Uh, we so value relationships uh, and want to have those personal kind of knee-to-knee, nose-to-nose experiences because there's just something precious and valuable in that. But we're also realizing that we can reach people across great spans of distance. And that's why Option Line now is international. That's why uh, Abortion Pill Rescue Network has gone international. I think the last count I saw was uh, we've we've been contacted by people from 49 different countries looking for abortion pill rescue and mm -hmm. reversal. And we've been trying to help make that happen. So we've got to have more people and we have to have more places and we have to have more pathways to bring and to champion pregnancy help all right. over. That's right. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for that question. Multiplication. Multiplication. Yes. <laughs> gave you a preview of hey. tonight's uh, chat. So that's great. <laughs> Next question. Who's got one? I, first of all, I want to thank each and every one of you guys <laughs> for just such a great presentation. Well, Peggy, I just appreciate um everything you guys have just spoken and said so far. Thank and you. as a former board member, how can we reach out into the black community to get more people aboard? Because this is so vital. And I have such a heart for this. Mm -hmm. And this is so vital. And I just appreciate you reaching across. But we've, what, 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 are you, what do you see heartbeat reaching out to you know, to get more people in, in the African-American community aboard to this, because we, we have been so far behind. And it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, we've got to step up to the plate and be a part of this, because this is awesome, mm -hmm. awesome, awesome, awesome. And I want to thank you guys for the leadership and everything you've do here at Heartbeat. I appreciate well, you, it so much. Thank you, Pat. You know, you've, you've inspired, you inspired us as a board member. We've had several of these conversations in the past. And one of, there's a couple of key things that we've been working on 
uh, doing. And, and I was having this discussion with actually one of our visitors was with us and, and was kind of questioning things and asking about certain, the, uh, kind of asking me this question in a different way. And, and one of the commitments that Heartbeat has made uh, is really the idea that, that we're going to believe and assume that, that there are people from the minority communities in America that are leaders in their own right and that they have something powerful to tell all of us. Because it's not for the lack of serving minorities in the centers. Because if you look at our how we serve, we serve a lot of minorities in almost proportionate to the number of abortions that are happening, which is, which is, an, out, which is an, an atrocity against the minorities on the abortion side, right? So from a client perspective, we serve all types in all ways. The challenge has been to kind of integrate the power of really the black church in essence it, to really stand up leaders, and there are tremendous leaders, and we've heard tremendous voices stepping out. You know, it's it's just uh, powerful to see more and more who are doing that. And so, even as the pregnancy help centers are raising up leaders, we want to highlight them. We did that today with the with the the Latina community, and we continue to do it. And and sometimes I feel like we you know we've made missteps in the past of of we we think we think to look at someone who's a certain skin color or or has a certain heritage, and we say to them. Will you come and talk to us about people about reaching people like you? And that that's a valid moment. That's a valid thing to do. But that's not enough. Right. We need to realize that they have skills, that they have a, an anointing, and that they have a clarity about leadership that applies to all of us. And so we've basically been trying to find ways to kind of. I think the term in the schools is mainstream. We want to mainstream uh, uh, leaders that are from that community because they are good leaders in their own right and stand them up that way. And until we do that, and I, you know, I would say, Pat, you ask a great question that is particularly directed at the at really at their U.S. audience. But we have some powerful African women who are leading. We have some tremendous uh, um, Asian women who are stepping forward. We have we have you know in Latin America we have a number of women uh, and men who are stepping forward and leading in their own right. And so, if nothing else, we're going to borrow from them and bring them into the U.S. experience because. It's really an idea that we do this. We are better together in all, the, all these ways, and we need to do more of that. That's good. Mm -hmm. Time for one more question, and that's all. Anybody else? I am asking this question on behalf of a board member. Um, as we, some of us in this room know, you start to get a little bit older, and you can look at your own personal timeline and see ways God has worked. So the question that I have for the board member who had to step out was, <laughs> What did you want to be when you grew up, and how would you see that kind of transforming into where you are today? Don't need an answer first. Well, I, I got to be what I always wanted to be because when I was a kid, I was always really inspired by the missionaries. I was raised in Catholic schools, and missionaries were just so inspirational. We brought them in, you know, we raised money for them, we saved the rice bowls, you know, uh, for that, that was, looked like a rice bowl, but you put your money in um, during Lent to, to make sacrifices, and then that was given to the missions. So I always kind of wanted to be a missionary, but the other thing I always wanted to be was a teacher, and um, I did get to be a teacher, I got to be an English teacher for 20 years, which I absolutely loved. I loved every minute of it. 
And so when God was calling me, I thought, to work full-time in pro-life, first of all, I couldn't believe it because here I was doing what I always thought I wanted to do. But now, through my work at Heartbeat, I've got to be kind of a missionary and travel to other countries, and I've also gotten to continue to teach, you know? I got to write The Love Approach and, and teach it, so I feel like God gave me what I always wanted. And as a, a friend of ours describes, uh, this is the mission field created by abortion. Right. It's an unreached people group, as yeah. he would say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Oh, my turn. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I had this uh, idea that I was going to be a marine biologist, and then I saw the movie Jaws. And, <laughs> and you know, that's not going to happen. No, I don't know how I got here, really, honestly. I, I, this is, you know, like you think of, I, I, I'm sitting in a conference, by the way, for those who have not been attending the conference. You know, it's only 90% women. And uh, there have been plenty of moments over the years that I've said, Lord, how did I get here? Um, but it's just one of those things where this captivated my heart early. Mm -hmm. uh, I was kind of on a business path. I was kind of doing the business thing mm -hmm. and not really quite sure uh, what I really, what I truly wanted to do, and then suddenly God revealed to me what I truly wanted to do. I just didn't know it yeah. at that time. And then uh, as I as I continued to walk this walk, there were a couple of key instances for me that where I could have made a different decision and would have been on another path. But I look back now and say, I see how God preserved me for this very thing, for this very moment, for the opportunity to uh, uh, raise up in leadership in a local pregnancy center, and then to have the privilege and blessing to meet Peggy Hartshorn and now, <laughs> now serve with her for so many years and have the, have the tremendous privilege to um, step into her role as, sh as she vacated it, um, to really step into a new season of her life and, yeah. and, and allow me the privilege to serve as president of Heartbeat International. It's been so. a blessing. It's been a blessing for me, Jarrell. Yeah. But I, I want to add a couple things, though. First of all, the marine uh, analogy there. You know, um, God called fishermen to be fishers of men. And I think you have the marine thing was somehow kind of a <laughs> premonition of that. You know, and then the business thing. You know, Jarrell really is a very smart businessman. And uh, that is a gifting of yours. And I think your, your tremendous administrative skills and, and business head... Uh, strategic thinking is, is, has been a real gift to Heartbeat and our movement. So in a way, God kind of fulfilled everything you wanted to be, too. Sure. Yeah. yeah. That's one way to look yeah. at it, yeah. God's been at work. Yeah. Are we good? <clears throat> well, I think that was a good question to end on there. Uh -huh. So I know there's more to tell of this story, and we have a book coming out very soon here. So this is sort of a teaser for that because oh, there's good. even more to come in that book. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you to our live audience Yay. for listening. This was fun. We might have to do this again and bring you all back in. Thank you to our listeners who are um, listening to the recording of this later. Again, we're at the Heartbeat Annual Conference celebrating 50 years of Heartbeat International. So it's been a good week, and we are just wrapping up today. This is our last day. Um, so if you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to heartbeatinternational.org slash podcast to hear some of our other episodes. Um, you can subscribe to podcasts through your favorite podcast player and get more information um, or contact Heartbeat at any time if you have questions, comments, or feedback. Thanks for listening.